everyone. Welcome to another episode of our Topics and Drug Testing podcast series. My name's Frank Samaro. I'm the Director of Marketing for the Drug Monitoring Franchise here at Quest. I'm real excited about today's episode titled Drug Monitoring for Stimulants, and I think you're going to really enjoy the discussion. The podcast today features Quest Diagnostics' very own Dr. Les Edinburgh. Dr. Edinburgh is the Executive Science Director for the Toxicology and Drug Monitoring Franchise. It also features Dr. Jeff Gooden. Dr. Gooden is a Senior Medical Advisor, also for the Toxicology and Drug Monitoring Franchise. Les and Jeff, it's great to have both of you with us today. Please take a moment and introduce yourself. This is Les Edinburgh. I'm the Executive Science Director for Toxicology for Quest Diagnostics. Thanks, Frank. Happy to join Les here today. This is Dr. Jeff Gooden. I'm a pain management and addiction specialist, currently working at University of Miami and serving as a consultant to Quest Diagnostics, the Division of Toxicology and Drug Monitoring. Happy to be talking about drug testing for stimulants today. Great. Without any further ado, I'm going to turn it right back to you guys and get the discussion started. Thanks so much. Thanks, Frank. You know, I'll kick it off. Les, what I really want to get into today is talking about the misuse of stimulant drugs, both prescription and illicit. It really amazes me to look at even some of Quest's own internal data at how these drugs continue to be on the rise. Can you kind of give our listeners just a, an overview of, we, we call them stimulants, but what's involved with that class of medicine? I'd be glad to, Jeff. I think there's a lot of confusion around stimulants because there's lots of things that people think are stimulants and there's some that aren't. Basically, at a very high level, a stimulant is any substance that affects the central nervous system, either by stimulating the brain to speed up both physical and mental processes. Stimulants come in what I like to call three broad categories, prescription, illicit, and your natural stimulants. Uh, an example of your prescription stimulants would be amphetamine and methylphenidate. Illicits would be cocaine and methamphetamine, and some of the natural stimulants that we're probably more familiar with, particularly caffeine and nicotine. So today we're going to focus on the major sympathomimetic amine, CNS stimulants, and they're called sympathomimetic because they mimic the natural neurotransmitters that we have in our CNS. Specifically, we're going to talk a lot about amphetamine, methamphetamine, and MDMA. Hey, Les, you know, I think back 25, 30 years ago, not to date myself, but medical school days, and we were talking about these sympathomimetic amines. Are we still using the same kind of drugs as we were back then? Give us a little bit of the history of these stimulant medicines. Absolutely. You know, I, I think everything is better with a little bit of history. I love history. So like I said before, sympathomimetic amines are structurally similar to the natural neurotransmitter phenylethylamine where, from which epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine are derived. Surprisingly, people think amphetamine is a relatively new type of drug, uh, but actually it was first synthesized in 1887, methamphetamine in 1893. However, methamphetamine was first used in 1930 for all things, the treatment of obesity, narcolepsy, attention deficit disorder, and hypotension with amphetamine following in 1935. So whereas we give methamphetamine as bad rap as being this illicit drug, initially it was the first choice for treating those types of conditions. Where methamphetamine started to get a bad name 
it was used first by the German military forces in World War II. Uh, they were referred to as Stuka tablets, named after the Stuka dive bomber, and or Hermann Goring pills, specifically those two names, because they were used to keep pilots alert while they were flying long missions. But what they came to find out was that they actually had a, uh, a drug issue on their hands as they became addicted to these drugs and caused a lot of problems down the road. If we're going to stick with the military piece, in popular culture, Elvis Presley is credited with having his first exposure to methamphetamine while serving in Europe in the U.S. Army, where it was also used to keep troops on alert while they were out there during the Cold War. MDMA, a derivative of methamphetamine, so that's methoxydimethylamphetamine, was first used in psychotherapy in the 1970s. It was actually considered a love drug. So what you would do, you would have a couple in therapy, you would give them each a tablet, and they would develop, develop amorous feelings for each other, which was very good for moving things along, but sometimes after the drug wore off, things didn't work out as well, and they couldn't keep it going. And in fact, you developed an addiction which is why when you think about MDMA today, it's associated with raves, which is also associated with risky sexual behavior. And that's where MDMA gets its current, let's say, cultural innovation from that early use, once again, as a clinical drug, and it didn't work out as well there as it's working out in the illicit drug market. Hey, Les, the pharmacology here is really amazing, but is it an issue of having a narrow therapeutic index? I mean, because think about it caffeine and nicotine, right? When, you know, used in moderation, there's probably a little bit of a pick-me-up, yet both of those chemicals seem to be so addictive. Talk to people who say, you know, yeah, I'm doing three cups of coffee a day. I can't go, can't get going without my coffee. And take a drug like methamphetamine, which seems to have had some potential medical use. But yet when we go to the substance use disorder clinics, we see these people who just get so addicted to it, their, their lives fall apart. Is it a therapeutic index thing where small doses are okay, big doses are bad, or is it just there's such a naturally, I hate to use the word, addictive feature to these medicines that the brain becomes so dependent upon them they can't do without it? Yes, I think it, at all doses, uh, because those of us who may not drink 10 cups of coffee a day still get cranky when we don't get one. And so your brain becomes accustomed to the stimulation and some people biochemically need more stimulation. And so that's when it starts to get out of hand. Others are able to moderate their dose. However, when you talk about the addictive properties, that's a whole another deep dive that we don't have you know, a six hour podcast to cover, but certainly dose does matter. One of the other things that's important about the stimulant class, the majority of them, is that they're stereoisomers, meaning that they are mirror images of each other. Amphetamine and methamphetamine appear as what we call racemates. There's a D version and an L version. And in these, the D form is more pharmacologically active than the L form. So if we wanna use one of the, the great examples is you talk about the VIX inhaler it has L-methamphetamine in it. And people say L-methamphetamine, I don't get addicted to my inhaler. And that's because the L form does not have the addictive potential of the D form. And so the more pure D form, the more activity that you get from it. And, and there you have the difference 
between illicit methamphetamine is primarily the D form. And if you were to test different varieties of illicit material, you'll find that the D form, the more D form there is, the better the meth is. And as sort of another side note about how you make these stimulants in these illicit meth labs, they have got this down to the point where they can make these batches about 99% efficiency. Uh, if, you know, if you've watched a lot of Breaking Bad, that's the whole premise of it. Um, and keep the L-meth very low. But in a more clinical world, you have Adderall versus Binance. And the difference there is Adderall is the mix where Venance is the D form and therefore you get more directed activity with Venance than you do with the Adderall. Um, and those are some of the challenges we face when we talk about using AMP and Methamp. Hey Les, I know from a Quest Diagnostics or from a drug testing standpoint, we talk all the time about the importance of measuring the D or the L forms, the isomer forms. Can you tell our audience a little bit about the type of testing we do, like the difference between immunoassay and, and presumptive testing or more definitive kinds of testing like we do, you know, GCMS or LCMS? Absolutely. As always, we usually start with some sort of screening device. You know, we like to separate the negatives from the positives so we can take those to confirmation. In the immunoassay side of the house, everybody has an amphetamine assay. The issue there is there's lots of cross-reactivity for amphetamine and methamphetamine. The reason for by cross-reactivity, I mean lots of over-the-counter cold and allergy preps can cause positives in the immunoassay screen or what we call unconfirmed presumptive positives. The reason for that is amphetamine and methamphetamine relatively to some of the other drugs are small drugs. And the smaller a drug gets, the harder it is to create antibodies that are specific for one or the other. And because of where these drugs are targeted, the over-the-counter medications look very similar to amphetamine and methamphetamine. And so it's very hard to develop an assay to distinguish between them. And in fact, what happens is if you want high specificity for methamphetamine, you could actually lose specificity for amphetamine and vice versa. So what you really want is to capture a, a broad net these days. You want an immunoassay that will get amphetamine and methamphetamine. Before the days of Adderall and Venance, you didn't really care. You were just interested in the illicit methamphetamine. But now where we're trying to monitor the actual prescribed use of amphetamine, it becomes important to have an immunoassay that will pick up both. And there are also other natural products out there that will, what we call trip the immunoassay. Some we know, some we don't know. And it becomes more difficult to decide just to use a screen-only type immunoassay. One of our other favorite drugs for today is MDMA. Not so much as a problem there because structurally it has a pretty interesting structure, even though it's still small. And so the MDMA assays are fairly specific versus amphetamine and methamphetamine. It's still an issue, but it's not the issue that we see with the AMP and the methamp. Sorry to interrupt, but it sounds like, you know, I unfortunately have the honor of chatting with uh, managed care companies and payers all the time who want to know why we can't just do presumptive, the less expensive testing. It sounds like a drug or the class of amphetamines is a prime example of why we can't just do an immunoassay test. 
Absolutely. You don't want to accuse someone of taking methamphetamine when acts are being prescribed Adderall, but also you don't want to screen someone positive for amphetamines, assuming it's the Adderall and actually they're taking methamphetamine. And in either of those cases, you don't want someone taking an over-the-counter cold preparation to come up positive and then suffer some adverse effect as if they were actually either using illicit methamphetamine or illicit non-prescribed drug like amphetamine. So can our listeners assume that if they send a sample to Quest Diagnostics, and it goes from presumptive positive to definitive on confirmation. If we do that definitive testing, can our customers assume that the sample is truly positive? Absolutely. And while we still have these lookalikes in the confirmation world, the assays are designed to separate them. And in fact, we run a lot of these uh, over the counters in every run that we do, just so we can demonstrate on a daily basis that we are separating all the things that we need to separate. So we're only truly reporting amphetamine, methamphetamine, MDMA, MDA, which is metabolite MDA or fentramine. So we take great care to ensure that doesn't happen. And that's why it's essential that we do some sort of definitive assay with any type of screen, which includes point of care devices. I know we've discussed point of care devices on other uh, podcasts, I believe. And it's still the same um, with the amphetamine group you have to consider the cutoffs, cross-reactivity, and you absolutely have to do some sort of definitive testing if you're going to use that result for some sort of medical intervention. Yeah, and I can tell you, Les, from the practice side of things, if I'm suspecting amphetamine, methamphetamine use, I always make sure to order confirmation with the D and L isomer so I could really see, are they testing positive for the D form to know if there's been illicit use? It's absolutely essential to do that. You, we have the DNL test, so you can do that. If there's ever a doubt, you should do it. If someone brings you an inhaler and it says the L-methamphetamine on it, by all means, have it tested uh, simply because they could have gotten this information off the internet. They're using real methamphetamine, but they carry a, an inhaler around to justify their methamphetamine positive. And, and the DNL test will separate that quite easily. That's great. Hey, I got one for you. I hear all the time. Tell me about Ritalin. You know, my patient says they're taking Ritalin. What's my amphetamine, methamphetamine screen going to look like? Uh, yeah, they, unfortunately, they, you know, they come back as negative. Uh, we, we get quite a few calls about that because people see, wait a minute, it's a stimulant test. It's related to amphetamine, methamphetamine. Unfortunately, because while again, it's a small molecule, it has a structure that gives it a very nice specificity. And so the antibodies will not pick up methylphenidate. So if you are prescribing methylphenidate, Ritalin, you really need to order the specific test to look for Ritalinic acid, which is uh, the primary metabolite we look for in urine. And, and it's, it's something that every chance I get, I like to say it because people hear stimulant, they throw them all together and assume they all come up positive on the same test. And that just doesn't happen. And Les, I'll leave our, our listeners with a clinical pearl as well. Unlike marijuana, which is a, you know, lipophilic lipid soluble drug and gets excreted for days. So it has a good you know duration of testing positive. Some of these stimulants are very short acting. And unless you catch them in the, within the same day or, you know, next day, they might test negative for their stimulant. So keep in mind, different half-lives of these drugs, different protein and lipid solubilities affect, you know, how and when we test for them. 
Mm-hmm. All right, great. Les, before we finish, can you tell us a little bit about synthetic stimulants? You know, we've covered some of the natural ones. Yes. And just to sort of follow up on one interpretation issue there you had mentioned, uh, I always like to throw this out simply because it comes up. Uh, you mentioned the different half-lives. Amphetamine itself has a reported half-life somewhere between seven hours and 22 hours. Uh, you said, well, how can a drug have that big of a difference? It can easily be changed by something as simple as cranberry juice. Cranberry juice acidifies the urine, which increases the excretion of amphetamine. So if you're prescribing a low dose of amphetamine, like Adderall, to some a child who happens to like cranberry juice, um, and you're testing, they're coming back negative, it could be very well that that single 10 milligram dose that they take before they head off to school to keep them focused. By the time they get done with school and they get to see you in the afternoon, they may not be enough there that is going to test positive. And it's just something to be very aware of uh, with the amphetamine group as a whole, because they all respond the same way. You brought up synthetic stimulants, one of my you know favorite cultural topics this, these days, because uh, there's just so much out there, a lot of misunderstandings about what they are, what they do, how prevalent they are. And it just causes a lot of, I think, misinformation and sometimes over-testing. Synthetic stimulants, let's just say the poster child uh, for synthetic stimulants sort of came from uh, actually, once again, a natural product called CAT. It's not CAT like C-A-T, it's CAT, K-H-A-T. And it's a plant-based stimulant that is used in the Horn of Africa and the Arabian Peninsula since the 10th century. So it's, it's in the, you know, the, the marketing has been really good on this one, been going on since the 10th century. And what it does is it involves the chewing and the sucking on the leaves of the young plant. They're chewed for the euphoric effect. There's 20 million daily users in their region. Imagine that 20 million daily users in that region of cat. It's also used by farmers and others to fight fatigue and hunger, because remember, it's a stimulant. And you kind of have to think about it going after that afternoon coffee, you know, that double, triple latte from Starbucks at two to get you through the rest of the day. Well, they just sit down and chew some cat and just keep on rolling through the rest of the day. Cat's the name of the plant, but it's actually cathinone, spelled with a C, is the active ingredient. And once again, it's related to neurotransmitters such as epinephrine, which is why you get this, the stimulating effect. Now, what you get, like any good drug, you get the stages of cathinone use. First, you get to euphoria, which lasts about you know two hours. And during that time, you tend to let your mind wander into deep discussions, uh, followed by increased irritability, which these days you can understand how that happens. Then you, you go through a phase of increased imagination. As with all stimulants, at some point it wears off and the brain has to rebound. So where it had lots of neurotransmitter, now it doesn't. And now you go into a depressive stage you know, the, the letdown of it, which is a lot of irritability there that follows that. You know, Les, you talk about the uh, neurocognitive effects and, and that sounds acutely, but I could tell you on the substance use treatment side, we see these things chronically. Like, you know, you look at some PET scans and we see altered brain structure. We know that these people with chronic stimulant abuse have cognitive, neurological, emotional problems. And just think what do stimulants do? 
They cause you to release large amounts of, of your body's stores of dopamine and serotonin, and you can't replenish those stores so quickly. So you get mood fluctuations, anxiety, depression, you know, even when you're not taking the drugs. So, I mean, there are long-term impacts that clearly reflect the challenges of treating these particular patients. It's very difficult to treat these people. We don't have a, a drug like buprenorphine or methadone like we do for medication-assisted treatment for opioids. Uh, so, you know, again, you talk about the acute pathophysiology, but I think it leads into the chronic impairment as well. Absolutely. And, and usually with the stimulant users, you know, you find multi-drug use, not multi-stimulants. You need something to ease the pain or the irritability. So you'll find like benzodiazepines. Then on the way down, you need something to sort of get you straight, keep you easy until your vein rebuilds. And then you can go for another round. And, and that even complicates it more by, you know, introducing that polydrug activity. Yeah, Les, you know, it's great that you bring that up because even when we look at Quest's own data that we publish in what we call our health trends report, and those are available online for at least the last number of years, we've seen that there's been a, a tremendous spike in drug mixing. We look at our fentanyl positivity rate, it comes back fentanyl cocaine positive, fentanyl amphetamine positive. And that could potentially be the reason that drug overdoses have been more lethal historically as well, because it used to be patients would misuse one drug. Now it's poly drug abuse. Absolutely. And stimulants are, are no different. So to continue on our journey of synthetic stimulants, cathinone is really the parent molecule for the development of a series of drugs that are collectively known as bath salts. Um, or we tend to use this term in the toxicology business, novel psychoactive stimulants or NPSs. They're referred to bath salts for the reason that due to the initial packaging to throw off the FDA and others, they were packaged up and sold as bath salts. You just had to know which ones were which to buy and to use to get the effect. Now, how these drugs, these new synthetic stimulants out there have a higher hallucinogenic property than the cathinone did, which is accounts for why they're so widely abused when they're available. And like cathinone, which is now regulated, uh, these compounds will become regulated once they're identified. The problem is they're being made and distributed more quickly than authorities and laboratories can actually identify them and get them under regulatory control which is why we have such a problem with them. As an example, one of the most culturally exposed bath salt is alpha-pyrrolidopentenphenone, that's a mouthful, or alpha-PVP, more commonly known as FLACA, but also became notorious as the face-eater drug, where someone who was on alpha-PVV attacked another person and actually was trying to chew off their face. And the reason for this is because it comes very easy to overdose on these drugs. The hallucinogenic properties, uh, they don't wear off as fast. They've determined that these things hang around in the brain longer than they do the bloodstream. And so the adverse effects include delusions, paranoid psychosis, agitation, altered mental state, agitated delirium, and its associated symptoms that these have become the real dangers of these drugs. N not so much that you're gonna overdose and die from them, but while under the influence, you may do things that will lead to your 
uh, injury or injury of others. Hey, Les, can you talk about Quest Diagnostics availability or ability to test for these uh, synthetic stimulants? Yeah, currently we have a panel that includes MDPV, mephedrone, methylone, butylone, penalone, and alpha-PVP that I mentioned earlier. However, as I said, these new drugs come on the market very continuously. And until we actually are able to get some of the material, we don't actually know that they may or may not be there. An example of there's two relatively new ones that are out there, ethylone and utilone, which we begin to see things we can't identify in our offering and we start working to figure out what they are. And that's how we identify them. And now we go back and we extend the offering to pick these drugs up. However, we see them all the time. It's just, we cannot report them because they're not part of the offering, but it is the greatest challenge in dealing with this family of synthetic stimulants. And Lester's, are there any presumptive tests for those or is that a test that goes direct to definitive? These all go direct to definitive. The reason is because there is not a good screening test for them. And because there may be a lot of cross-reactivity, just because you screen it positive and confirm it negative doesn't mean they weren't on a synthetic stimulant. It just means it may not be in our menu. So what we prefer to do at Quest is only offer those things in a definitive format that we absolutely know that we can test for. And that way the provider really understands what he's testing for and what is positive which doesn't mean, again, there's not a synthetic stimulant present if he sees clinical signs of it. It just means we know exactly the ones we're able to test for and those we can't. Well, Les, this was a great review of stimulants. Let me remind our listeners that Quest Diagnostics has a full panel of drug and toxicology testing. We clearly know that stimulant and other illicit drugs of abuse can have geographic patterns. So you know best what's in your area. We actually have some reports showing a geographic trends on drug misuse. When you look at the SAMHSA data, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, and the data from CDC, we see that between 2008 and 2015, amphetamine-related hospitalizations more than tripled from 55,000 to more than 200,000. And as of 2019, this statistic is really just astounding. Methamphetamine had surpassed opioids as the leading cause of overdose deaths in some Western US states. That's something that I wasn't aware of. So psychostimulant misuse and abuse is really a big problem. It can have a detrimental impact on patients' lives. Quest Diagnostics is proud to bring toxicology and drug monitoring to the forefront of drug testing. As you know, Quest serves one in three adult Americans and half of all the physicians and hospitals in the United States. There are probably a thousand MD and PhDs like myself and Dr. Edinburgh associated with Quest, and we're here to help you with your drug testing needs. Les, I'm going to pass it to you for closing comments. Yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about stimulants. I think it's misunderstood, particularly not only their use, but also what we test for, how we test for them, and that the ever-changing environment of the synthetic stimulants. And the at one point, we, we sort of had methamphetamine under control. There were a lot of labs within the United States that were closed down, once again, all of the Breaking Bad scenario. And as that happened, you know, the natural supply process kicks in. It starts coming from out of the country so much that anecdotally, it was understood that if you got heroin, you got a free sample of methamphetamine to go with it. Because once again, 
if you have a drug that brings you down, you need a drug that bring you up. And I think because methamphetamine can be so addicting, it's one of the reasons we see a rise as you commented on methamphetamine deaths and addiction. So it's an important topic. And as always, like you said, Jeff, we're here to help. Thanks Les so much. And Frank, we'll turn it over to you to close. Okay, thanks so much, Dr. Edinburgh and Dr. Gooden. And to you, all of you out there, that does it for today's discussion on drug monitoring for stimulants. I hope you really learned a lot. I thought it was a great discussion, really interesting information. So again, I'd like to thank Dr. Edinburgh and Dr. Gooden for sharing their information and their expertise. For you out there in the audience to learn more about today's topic and about the Quest Diagnostic Drug Monitoring offering, please visit our website, questdrugmonitoring.com. There you can find information on our drug monitoring test directory and all our offerings, as well as our educational resources and insights from our team of toxicology experts like Dr. Gooden and Dr. Edinburgh. If you have any questions, please be sure to contact our experts at Quest Diagnostics RX Tox Line. The number is 1-877-40-RX-TOX or 1-877-407-9869. Here you can talk with our medical and toxicology experts who are available to help you with information on test ordering or results interpretation. To listen to this and all other podcasts on our drug testing series, be sure to visit questdrugtesting.com or subscribe through your favorite podcast venue. At Quest Diagnostics, we're committed to providing you results and insight to support your clinical decisions. Thanks and have a great rest of the day. 